There is something unique about being the person doing a wedding ceremony. All of you, when there's a wedding, are sitting out there where you are now. I'm standing up here. So I get to watch all of you. And do you know there's something I've noticed about weddings from this perspective right here? A crowd does the same two things every single time a bride walks down the aisle. If we were here in this church, that door back there would open up. The bride would come in in this glorious, glowing dress. The groom would be standing right down here. The mother of the bride, right, stands. The crowd stands and everyone just does this. And all of you are looking back at her. The ladies are the ones, you can always watch the eyes. They start at the head, they go down to the toes, they go back up to the head. Ladies, we know you dress for other ladies, not the guys. We know that's how it, we know that's how it works. Then something else happens. Everyone then turns and looks at the groom as if in unison. Now, this is especially true of the ladies, but the guys, I think you do it to some extent, too. It's, you could just choreograph it. Everyone turns and looks here. They stand. They gaze at her. She comes down the aisle. They start, they, she starts to pass by them, and immediately they look at the groom, and they're saying, is he crying yet? <laughs> Admit it. I remember when I was there. I remember when I was there, it was like, hold it together, man. Hold it together. Now, I start there because John is talking about this new reality that those of us who know Jesus Christ will enter into for eternity one day. What we would call heaven, though really it's probably more accurately the new earth. And last week we talked about the new heaven and the new earth. The new sky and the new earth that God is going to create. Is it a replacement of the old heaven and earth? Yes. Is it a redemption of the old heaven and earth? Yes, because it's going to be an earth and we're going to live here. We talked about the great glory of the new heaven and earth. Not that we're flying off to live in God's home. But that God is coming down to live in our home. That's the glory of it. And notice with me in Revelation 21, if you have your Bibles, in whatever form you have them, verse 1 of chapter 21, John is seeing a new heaven and a new earth. But then notice in verse 2, he says, And I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem. So we've seen a new heaven and a new earth, and now we see a new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. He's saying, when I saw this new city coming down out of heaven from God, it was like a bride walking in on her wedding day to walk down that aisle. It was like he thought of the most beautiful thing that he could think of, the most beautifully decorated thing that he could think of. And he said, it's like a woman on her wedding day. Now, sometimes we just think of this new city that God has for us in, again, very just kind of stereotypical, vague thinking. 
There's gold streets, sure. There are these huge gates. There's jewels on the walls. And we don't even try to understand what God's actually trying to communicate to us in this, pas in this passage. I want you to be prepared this morning to have your minds blown. Because mine was when I studied what God has for us in this new city of Jerusalem. You know, it is so stupendous and so extravagant that many even conservative commentators have come to it and said, there's no such city. This is just symbolic. It is, it is just a picture of how beautiful the redeemed church is going to be. And I say, really? Go before it into Revelation chapter 20, what comes right before it, when a great white throne judgment happens and all of mankind across all of human history is judged. Do we think that's a picture and a metaphor or do we think that's actually going to happen? You tell me. It's going to happen. Then we read in Revelation chapter 20 that whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Does the Bible teach that that's just a picture or a metaphor? Does the Bible teach that that's real? The next verse says, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Do we believe that's a picture, a metaphor, or is that real? Then in verse 2, we see, and I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. Why would we think that's a metaphor? Why would we think that's just a picture? Just because we can't wrap our eyes and our minds around the reality of what New Jerusalem is going to be doesn't mean we should not even try. I believe that what God is describing here for us is something that is our inheritance and God intends it to change us today when we think about it. He intends to change the way you live life today by thinking about what the new heaven and new earth is going to be like tomorrow. The title of the message this morning is A New City. Last week, a new heaven and earth. This week, a new city. And I want to look at three aspects, three things, characteristics about this city that I trust will be illuminating to us this morning. First, it's divine origin. Secondly, it's dazzling design. And third, it's distinguishing Feature. First of all, it's divine origin. I want you to notice here in verse 2, this is the introduction to the longer section that Johnny and Kelvin Todd read for us this morning. Verse 2 says, And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. It is a divine origin. Notice what he says, it is out of heaven. Now, I don't know how to imagine a city coming down out of heaven. I don't even know how to comprehend that. A city coming down from the sky as if on an elevator. And yet that's what he says. I think the idea here is that there is no earthly precedent for this city. Just like we said in the new heaven and the new earth, it's going to be something fundamentally new. Is it going to be redeeming the old? Yes. But it's going to be something fundamentally that you and I can't even comprehend. In the same way, John looked at it and said, I know that's a city, but I've never seen anything like it. It's a new city in every potential way that you could think of it. Notice that he says this city came down out of heaven from God. 
In other words, he's saying God is the one who designed this city. This is not an earthly or a human design. Now, we have some pretty good city planners. I know a pretty good architect. Believe it or not, I'm related to him. He does a pretty good job at design, but I guarantee you he doesn't have as good a design pedigree as God does. This is coming down from God. And we're reminded of John 14 when Jesus, right before he left this earth, told his disciples, I go to heaven to prepare a place for you. What's going on? I believe in heaven right now, in God's dwelling place right now. I believe that Jesus is doing exactly what he said, preparing this city for us that we're going to look at today. He's designing it. He's building it. He's constructing it. And one day, it's going to descend from heaven to the new earth, and heaven is literally going to come to earth. That's the picture here. It's from God. But notice he says, it's coming down. In other words, it is coming down into our human reality. That's the most wonderful thing about it, as I said. We're not going up to that city. That city is coming down to us. Now you say, why is that so relevant? Because, friends, the Bible wants to make clear that God's people for ages have been looking for this city. You say, what do you mean by that? I mean what Hebrews 11 says. When it talks about Abraham, a man who was called out from his family to go out into a land that he had never even seen before. He was a stranger. And Hebrews 11 says, by faith he sojourned in the land of promise, in the promised land, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles, in tents, with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. Now listen to this. For he looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. What was Abraham looking for? Abraham couldn't possibly have contemplated that heavenly city that one day is going to descend from heaven to earth. But do you know what he was looking for? He was looking for a city that God made, not man. And my fundamental question about this message today is, friend, is which city are you living for? Which city are you searching for? Are you like those Christians across all ages who have said, there's no benefit to me in, this, in these cities down here, but there's a city up there that I've been told about. Pilgrim's Progress, that wonderful book by John Bunyan. I introduced my children to it. There's this wonderful dramatization of it uh, that's available on Amazon Prime. I can recommend it to you. It is just a wonderful, wonderful um, depiction of this story. But whether you've read the book or you've watched a dramatization, the whole picture is that this Christian leaves the city of destruction. He reads in the book what's coming to it. And what is he going after? He's pursuing the celestial city. This is exactly the same idea. It is a city coming out of heaven from God down to the human reality where we will interact with it for eternity. So this city is of a divine origin. But what we need to see, secondly, is its dazzling design. Now let's fast forward to verse 9. If you have your Bibles there, Revelation 21 and verse 9. This angel, one of the angels which poured out the vial of judgment on the earth. That itself is a wonderful idea that we'll just note and pass by. This same angel comes to him and says, come hither, come here. I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. We'll talk about that idea more tonight. 
And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Same idea what he's already introduced in verse 2. Now notice what it said of this city. This city has the glory of God and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Now let's get this in our mind. What's the first picture that John sees when he comes comes out of heaven? He looks at that city and he says, that city has the glory of God. Now friend, what is the glory of God? Well, let me start here. What is the glory of anything? The glory of anything is what surpasses other things like it. What is the glory of a city? You might say how wealthy its inhabitants are, how big its buildings are, whatever separates it. You might say, what is the glory of a human being? What separates him or her from others? What is the glory of a great singer, Aretha Franklin? Beyonce, going back into time. What, what is the glory? Their voice. They sing like no one other does. That's their glory. What's the glory of Michael Jordan? That he was better at basketball than everyone else. No one could else could be like him. And you can go across all the different characteristics of what make human beings human beings. What their glory was is what separates them from what they are similar to. So what is the glory of God? It is the sum total of all his perfections. And the glory of God, as is depicted in the the scripture to us, is light. Just this light that pours out from his very being. Do you remember in the Old Testament when Moses went to spend time with God in the mountain? Forty days and forty nights. What was the characteristic of Moses when he came down from the mountain? His face was shining like a light bulb. Because he had been so surrounded by the light of God's glory, the light of his presence, that it was just reflecting off him. So much so that the people on the ground said, put a veil over your face. We we can't even look at you. That's the reflection of the glory of God. The first thing he sees is the reflection of this light shining out of the city. Not on the city like a spotlight, but shining out of the city. And then he says this light is like a jasper stone. He didn't say it was a jasper stone. He said it was like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Now, if you were to take a jasper stone, which is typically red, that's the typical color of a jasper stone, and say it's going to be as clear as crystal. Do you know what I guess what I'm picturing? A diamond. I think what John is seeing coming down out of heaven is this city that light is pouring out from it and everything is shining like a diamond. Now, a diamond, if you uh, ever purchase one of those for uh, a spouse or for yourself, they will actually tell you at that store that a diamond has something called sparkle, right? The amount of sparkle it has changes the value. You pay more for a diamond with more sparkle. And that's because when you hold it up to the light, what does a diamond do? It just radiates light in every different direction. Imagine a city coming down from heaven that when you look at it, it's just sparkling like a diamond in every conceivable direction. John says, that's your city one day. It's shining like a diamond. Because the light of God is glowing out from it, from the very inside of it, causing to radiate with this shimmering light. 
In fact, verse 23 tells us that this light that is coming out from the city, the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light, literally the lamp thereof. It's as if Jesus Christ himself will be the lamp reflecting God's glory, shimmering off these walls. Not only that, verse 25 says, the gates of it shall not be shut of that city, for there shall be no night there. And 24, verse 24 says, the nations shall walk in the light of it. This city is so brilliant, it will light up the entire world, the entire new heaven and new earth. That's the city. Now again, I want you to imagine if you could, one of the most beautiful sights to me in all of Minneapolis, maybe you've seen it before, is driving up 35W North, just south of town, and coming very close to downtown right around dusk. And if you have ever seen the sun shimmering off those glass buildings of downtown Minneapolis right around dusk coming up 35W North, I just say that's just incomparably beautiful. And now imagine the entire city sparkling like a diamond 24 7 365 that's what your sight and mine will be that's the central characteristic the glory of God but the second thing we need to see is its staggering size keep on going with me notice verse 12 the wall had was great and high it had 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels almost like a a color guard An angel at every single one of these gates. Names written thereon, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. I love that. Every one of Israel, Jacob's sons, will be written on one of those gates, showing that this city is the the fulfillment of the promise of God through Abraham, through the Old Testament people of Israel. Notice what he says, on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates, the wall of the city had 12 foundations and in them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Who are these? The 12 disciples. Now, of course, Judas won't be up there. And we don't know whether the 12th will be Matthias, who was selected, or whether that will be Paul. Bible doesn't tell us, but there will be 12 names up there. And they will be written as a reflection of the New Testament church. Old Testament and New merging together in this one city. Notice then what he says. And he that talked with me had a golden reed, a measuring rod, to measure the city and the gates thereof and the wall thereof. You say, why is this necessary? I don't understand why people still say this is a picture when when the Bible says they measured it out for you. God wants to show you how precise he's being. Let's keep on going. The city lies four square. So it's a square city. The length is as large as the breadth. It's the same long as it is broad. And he measured the city with the reed 12,000 furlongs. Literally, stadia. It's the Roman unit of measurement. And notice what he says. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. So the city is 12,000 stadia long, 12,000 stadia broad, and 12,000 stadia high. Now, are you ready for your mind to be blown? We don't know exactly how long a stadia was, or at least there could have been different measurements for it. But the one that is commonly accepted is that this 12,000 furlongs was 1,400 miles. Do you know how long 1,400 miles is? 
If you went from Minneapolis and went 1,400 miles due west that way, and you just kept on going as the crow flies, do you know where you'd be? Outside of Seattle, Washington. If you went 1,400 miles southwest, do you know where you'd be roughly? Los Angeles, California. If you went 1,400 miles due south, you'd be in the Gulf of Mexico, south of New Orleans. If you went 1,400 miles or about 1,500 miles southeast, you'd be in Miami, Florida. And if you went 1,400 miles due east, you'd be in Halifax, Nova Scotia, east of Maine. If you went 1,400 miles due north, you'd be north of Churchill, Manitoba, the polar bear capital of the world. 1,400 miles will be the city length and breadth. Do you know square miles, friends? That city will be nearly 2 million square miles. 2 million square miles. Do you know how big that is? By comparison, the entire continent of Australia is about 3 million square miles. It, will, it would cover two-thirds of the entire continent of Australia. Do you know how big the, the, city, the state of Minnesota is in square miles? It's about 80,000 square miles. That means the new city, Jerusalem, would cover about 25 state of Minnesotas. 25 of this state. The city of Minneapolis is about 60 square miles. This huge city in which we reside. That is about 300,000 Minneapolises. 300,000 Minneapolises will be that new city, Jerusalem. It would be 60,000 New York cities, about 60,000 New York cities. Are you getting a, a, just a picture of the scope of this city? But here's the thing that ultimately blows my mind. Do you know that it's not only 1,400 miles long and 1,400 miles broad, it's 1,400 miles high? Do you know, friends, the International Space System, the, the Space Shuttle, the International Space Station, I should say, is about 250 miles up at any given time? Have you seen the picture from the International Space Station before of Earth? That means you'd go up one International Space System and then go about four or five more. And then you'd be to the top of the city of New Jerusalem. The clouds up in the sky are maybe a mile some lower clouds are a mile high. Imagine going up to the clouds and then going 1,399 more miles up. God wants us to be utterly staggered because he gave us measurements. He wanted us to have a sense of the staggering size and scope. And then notice he says in verse 17, and he measured the wall thereof, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is of the angel. He's saying angelic and, man, and human measurements are the same. There's not some different scope up in heaven. Now, we don't know whether he means the size of the wall in its thickness or the size of the wall in its height. So we don't know for sure. But 144 cubits is about 216 feet. The top of the steeple, Ben told me today, is about 75 feet. If you went all the way to the top of the steeple at the church, double that and a little more, and you might be at the thickness of the wall of New Jerusalem. 
how can our minds not be blown? How can we even comprehend that incredible size? But not only that size, then when you think of the extravagance of this building, of this city, Keep on going now in verse number 18. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper. Again, this typically reddish color. And the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. Pure gold, a city of pure gold. And now again, I want you to think of this. Do you know there's only a limited amount of gold in the entire earth as we know it today? It's estimated That gold, all of the gold ever mined in human history is under 200 tons of gold. They think there may only be another 50, 50, uh, what, 50, 50 tons of gold in the earth. That may be all there is left in our earth. 200 tons of gold is worth about $7 trillion, $7.5 trillion. Here's the crazy thing. If you were to take all of the gold that has ever been mined in human history and put it into a cube... The cube would only be about 70 feet tall, 70 feet long, and 70 feet broad. A 70-foot cube would take all of the gold that's ever been mined in the world. And now God wants you to imagine a city of pure gold that is 1,400 miles cubed. Pure gold. Think about that. Now look at what he says about the walls, the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a chalcedony, the fourth in emerald, the fifth sardonyx, and on and on. If you want to take some some time to study, I did this, I won't share it all with you, you can go do it. Go Google each one of these stones and find the color that they are. They are the most radiant colors from red, ruby red, to emerald, bright green, to topaz, to reddish orange jacinth, to purple amethyst. And actually, you could just put little squares and color it in if you really wanted to see uh, the flow of the color across this wall. What's the picture here? God is making the most extravagant city that a human being could ever imagine, and it's just glowing with light, like sparkling like a diamond. Here's the other crazy thing. Notice here in verse 21, and the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Every several, every individual gate was of one pearl. One pearl is an entire gate. Friends, do you know the biggest natural pearl in all the world that they think they've identified is like 65 pounds? Like two feet? And the entire gate is one pearl? You say, what is God doing here? He wants to blow your mind. He wants you to think of a city that is ornate for the sake of being ornate, that is extravagant for the sake of being extravagant. And if you don't believe it, notice what he says next. The street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. Friends, do you know, I looked this up online, I got an estimate of this. Do you know that if you were just to make a street of concrete, One mile of concrete street you could expect to cost $2 million. One city street or a two-lane road in the rural area. Do you know in the urban environment, a mile of concrete road or highway, you would expect to cost three to five million dollars for a mile and now God is telling you to picture a city that streets are paved with gold for 1400 cubic miles covering that entire network 
I just can't even fathom what God is attempting to communicate to us about this stupendous city. But he wants us to contemplate it. Now, I want to stop here and ask this question. What is the most glorious feature of heaven? Or should I say of this new city on a new earth? Of the eternal state? John tells us what it is. Go back to verse 2. He says, and I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Do you know why he says that now? Can't you just imagine? He just sees this coming out of heaven. He says, it's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And then he says, and I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Friend, what is thirdly the distinguishing feature of that new city? Why is the glory of God radiating out from that city, causing it to sparkle like a diamond? Do you see who's in the city? God is. Now, I want you to think of Solomon's prayer, 1 Kings 8, after he's built this glorious temple to God, glorious by human standards, not glorious according to New Jerusalem standards. He built a glorious temple and he said, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have builded. Solomon said, God, how are you going to condescend to dwell here in this little puny building? And eternity will be God himself condescending to live in the most stupendously glorious city that we could possibly comprehend. Friend, the distinguishing feature of heaven is not its gold streets. It's not its sparkling diamonds of light. It's not its jewels on its walls. It's not its stupendous size. The most glorious feature of heaven is that God himself will be there. And I want you to think about it this way for just a moment. Remember that picture John says, this city is prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This city is like a bride adorned. Now, is that city, friends, prepared for you? Yeah, it's prepared for you. But you're not the husband. Who's the husband? Jesus is the husband. This is a bridal city for Jesus himself. You say, why is this city so stupendously glorious? Because Jesus is going to live there. Why is this city of staggering size that none of us can comprehend? Because Jesus is going to live there. Why is this city going to be so ornately decorated, gleaming and shimmering in all of its light and glory? Because Jesus is going to live there. And the best part of it is you get to be there too. Let that settle in. Let that reflect on your imaginations of what heaven is. Scripture tells us here again in Revelation 21 that there is no temple. Verse 22, and I saw no temple therein for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. You say, what does that mean? Imagine a city today. I bet there's no city on earth that doesn't have a temple or a religious shrine, a church of some kind. This city won't. Why? He said Jesus is the temple of it. See, what do you mean? 
Why do you need a temple when you have all the glory of God radiating through the entire city? Do you know what he's saying, friends? He's saying the entire city is a temple. The entire heaven, the new heaven and new earth is a temple. Doesn't that give you a picture of what life is going to be like there? You say, is heaven just going to be us taking hymn books and, and singing boring hymns and we're, that's just going to be worship forever? No, friends, everything's going to be worship. The whole city's worship. If we're eating breakfast, eating breakfast is going to be worship. If we're going to be going and doing a task for God, that's going to be worship. If it's recreation and God's got some wonderful enjoyment or some uh, other form of entertainment in the new heaven, that's going to be worship. Everything is going to be worship. There's no temple because life itself will be worshiping God and enjoying and re rejoicing in his glory forever. All of the activity inside and outside of the city will be focused exactly on the place where the lamb is and where he has chosen to spend all of eternity with his bride, his ransomed people across all ages and times. You know, friends, sometimes we say of things or of places, this is a place fit for a king. You know what is said when someone makes that statement. This city, New Jerusalem, is fit for the king who will live there forever. The fundamental question I want to ask each of us this morning, is it fit for you? Are you going to be there? Notice who he says will come into that city. Verse 27 says, and there shall in no wise, no way, no how enter into that city anything that defiles, neither whatsoever works abomination, does wickedness or makes a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. Notice there's a negative and a positive. The negative is that nothing will enter into the city that is sinful or wicked. The positive is that only those will enter in who are in God's book of life. You say, what is that book of life? Revelation chapter 20 tells us. Revelation 20 reveals to us, friends, that one day when that great throne comes down from God and God sits to judge the entire world, there are going to be books opened. One of those books is the book of all your works that you have ever done in your life recorded. One is going to be the book of life. Every name that is written there in the book of life will escape God's judgment eternally and will have the right to enter in to the new heavenly city, Jerusalem, where God will dwell with his people forever. You say, how do I know whether my name's written there? Isn't that the most important question that all of us should be asking ourselves? Is my name in that book? If that's what's going to depend, whether I have entrance into that city or whether I am rejected into the eternal judgment of God forever. Friends, all those who are written in the Lamb's book of life are those who are God's children they are those who have recognized that the Lamb, Jesus Christ, is the only sacrifice for sins.
They are the ones who have believed by faith that Jesus is the son of God, who he claimed to be, that Jesus was sent from God to be the forgiveness of our sins, that all who repent and put their trust in him eternally, their names are written in the book of life, never to be erased. Friend, is your name in that book of life? Here's one thing, glorious thing that is a proof for us. God has sent his spirit to live within us, to make our heart his home. And if he has given you the Holy Spirit and you know it, you can be assured that one day you will be with him when he makes that new city of Jerusalem his home. It is the foretaste of the glories that will follow us in heaven. There's one more point that I want to make for each one of you who know you're in that book of life. There are many here today who said, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that my name is written in that book of life. Then let me just ask you this question. Which city are you living for today? There's something cute for me as a dad. My seven-year-old son, Lars, has just gotten into baseball cards, basketball cards, football cards. And he's just a chip off the old block because I was the exact same way. I would take those cards. I would collect them. I'd have big boxes of them. I'd have these books that I'd flip open and go through them or, or sort out things, read the stats on the back. And, and he just is this little kid excitement. He just is so excited about these little things. But here's the interesting thing. When's the last time I have ever looked for my baseball cards? They're probably still in some box somewhere. They're probably in still some stacks of books that I have somewhere. I bet it's been 15, 20 years since I've even really thought of them. Why is that? Because I grew up. You know, some of you are playing video games two, four, six, eight hours a day. And someday I hope you're going to grow up too. And you're going to say, I don't, uh, this, is, this isn't what I do. It's not necessarily that the things we did as kids were wrong, whether that was collecting marbles or baseball cards or toy cars or dolls, whatever, whatever you did as a kid. It's not that that was wrong. It's just that someday you become a man and you say, or a woman and you say, I'm not a kid anymore. Now, here's the point. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that that day coming down when we know God is when we're going to be full-grown adults. And the question is for each one of us, why do we find it so hard to avoid chasing after all the childish stuff of this world? What's money? Child play when the new heaven and new earth is going to have trillions of dollars of value in gold. Why would I chase money here? Chase reputation? Chase relationships, chase prestige and status when the greatest reality across all of eternity will be that my name is written in the book of life, not through any merit of my own, but only through what the lamb did for me. Why would I chase it here? And what I fear for myself and for so many of us as Christians is we are like those little kids living life, clutching the things of this city here on earth when God gave us a depiction of what that eternal city is going to be forever and says, why don't you start living for that? 
See, friends, you can't take any of your money or any of your status or your prestige or your possessions. You can't take any of it to heaven, but you can take one thing to heaven. Or should I say, one entity, people, people. You can make sure to find those who will be written in the Lamb's book of life and tell them about a savior who died for them and one day has pre- and has, is preparing a city for them right now. You can encourage them and disciple them in their walk. What should we be investing in above all things? People. Because they'll be the ones who God has ordained to be with us forever. Friends, there's a new city. John saw it. I've never seen it. You've never seen it. But he says it's as beautiful like a bride walking down to see her husband. My two questions for you. Are you in that book of life? Are you going to enter into that city one day? And number two, are you living for this city right down here? Or are you living for the one that God is preparing for you? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the just incredible extravagance that it reveals for us. I pray, Father, if there's even one here this morning who doesn't know whether their name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, would you just show them their need to have some certainty about that point? Let's pause with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Is there someone here who would just honestly say, Pastor Peter, I don't know whether my name's in the Book of Life. I don't know whether I'm going to have the right to go into that city, but I'd like to know. I invite you just to slip your hand up wherever you're seated. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. But if you'd like to know whether that city is going to be your city one day for eternity, would you say, I'd like to know. I'd like to talk to someone about that. Is there anyone this morning? And Christian, are you living for that city? Let's put a new focus on our eternal home.